Yeah. We can do it both this time. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Hello. Hey, hey. We are the rap news. Oh, no. That's the other program. <laughs> This is rap, 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 rap. That was my rap. Welcome to the news of the w- world. The world news. Yeah. Your podcast <laughs> that is trying to explain the, the absurdity news. and the uh, weirdnesses of this planet yeah. and where we usually fail in doing so, but at least we try. Exactly. Yeah. This is our podcast. There are many like it, but this one is ours. Yes, at least it's ours. <laughs> Nobody can take it from us. Yeah. Except it's also yours. Ah, ah, it's personal. So, yeah, we look at the news and you join us every week or something along those lines. Yes, and it's Tim and Mark. Indeed. One is is in Berlin, one is in Amsterdam. Who knows which is which? Hmm. You have around half an hour to find out until the end of this program. Indeed. So Hmm. we stop. No, we start at the top of the news mountain. And currently at the top of the news mountain, especially here in Europe, although I think it's echoing around the world, there was the Turkish mine explosion resulting in a collapse. Uh, at this point, in the, uh, at least in the media, 282 people have been reported uh, uh, killed. Uh, there were actually over 700 people in this coal mine in western Turkey in a place called Soma. And uh, so on the one hand, you have this mining accident, a lot of people dead, a rescue operation already now 24 hours old. And of course, as you would expect in such an accident, first, the longer the time has gone by, the less likely anyone's going to survive. And the other has been a problem for rescuers, the, the, well, it's a coal mine, so gas and other uh, risks, you sometimes have to stop what you're doing and get out before another explosion is possible. And we have the second part of the story, which actually ties into topics that have been coming back on our program and in much of the media that talks about Turkey these days. That is the Erdogan connection. We're talking about the prime minister. And indeed, it seems like almost as soon as the accident happened, uh, streets, street battles, people all over Turkey, not just in Soma, erupted in protest. And there's a lot of blame being put on the prime minister. Uh, I've heard it's because of slow reaction uh, or his response, at least. And uh, people saying, of course, that this is an ongoing problem in Turkey, that there are not enough safety regulations. So therefore, the government is to blame. And there is a lot of anger at the prime minister who's been trying to consolidate his power ahead of upcoming presidential elections we've been talking about this all the measures that they've been taking to to cement his position and i saw today videos of him in the streets in soma well barely in the street as soon as he gets out of his car people are booing people are pushing his security and and he's had to sort of escape get out get off the streets so uh, it's an amazing chain reaction all started by this extremely sad uh, event and and I mean it is an accident but of course there are those human elements uh, when it comes to how prepared were you how safe were are these mines should 700 people be in such a mine yeah it was it was a really quick reaction too because I think there was already this general feeling that things were not going well at this uh, mine I mean uh, they um, the, the owner has been proudly uh, talking about uh, hmm. how they could 
uh, get down the price yeah. for uh, delivering, uh, I don't know what the amount was they were talking about, but basically they were um, cutting the, 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 the price to uh, bring out the coal um, to a fifth of what it was before, I think, in a year. So yeah. <laughs> that price cut, you know, that reducing of costs that, you know, must be come somewhere and it's usually uh, not paying enough. And also, and that's what everybody is expecting here and it shows, uh, you know, um, reducing the amount of uh, work done in terms of security of the workers. And this disaster, uh, which was, I think, was ignited by fires and explosions and then... Uh, Uh, CO, um, I would help you, but I'm not so good with the logistics of, of what yeah. happens in a coal mine. But indeed, yeah, it, it can be very explosive and uh, it's always a gas issue as well. Um, the, you know, th this is one of those issues. I almost have, dare I say, a little bit of pity. Well, a very little, but for the prime minister in this case, because Turkey is in such a situation, I think, economically and even in terms of standards, um, any accident that happens these days related to um, mining in general, not just coal um, or, or safety, I could even see road safety, because these standards are set up by the government, they're going to lay blame on whoever is in power. And they're not wrong, uh, but it is a difficult situation no matter who's in power because, you know, Erdogan is not the first president uh, prime minister to preside over a Turkey with low standards in terms of labor conditions and so forth. He just, a good accusation is he hasn't done enough to improve things. But there is an ongoing tradition here that a lot of people in Turkey have been trying to push forward on the agenda. Um, but, you know, there's been a lot of resistance, including from the business community. Of course, I'm sure coal mining in Turkey... Uh, is uh, very affordable compared to coal mining in Belgium, which is completely out of style at this point and, and was very expensive due to safety regulation, all those terrible things that save lives. So, uh, yeah, this, for me, this is interesting and understood why it's pinned on the prime minister, especially considering what he's been doing these few years. On the other hand, it's a no-win situation for the government because of the this this micro system that they live in that they've created their country you get what i'm saying <laughs> yes and um i mean it's also a matter of erdogan was becoming very popular in the recent years because he's done so much for the turkish economy turkish economy was booming for a long time and you know also this this comes as a cost and they had to reduce of course their Uh, costs for uh, energy because energy is usually one of the main factors behind such uh, a boost in, in, in economy. So this is all related. And then he's also very bad in dealing with uh, all kind of these events in the last year. I mean, we've seen him, you know, going on in a very delusional way, uh, responding to all those events and protests. And this time, I mean, his one of his first statements on this uh, event was, you know, like, oh, yeah, these things happen. You know? mm. And I don't think that anybody is really happy with this kind of answer. You know? No. So, <laughs> I don't know. We would probably expect, you know, the political protest to be 
the most powerful force for some kind of government. But I think such a tragedy can do even more because if it's really the working class people who get against them, who are usually those who are actually supporting him and bringing him into power, you know, then things get really dangerous for him. But we don't know. He's been in power still, although he shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. We don't I was, know. I was looking at some stats uh, published by the Irish Times, actually, when it comes to uh, deaths in different sectors uh, of, of, like, economically speaking, mining and other um, things. And you get the coal industry worldwide has had 30,000 people officially or close to 30,000 people die since 1970. Um, and the Irish Times goes into, you know, disasters in Australia, disasters in the United States. And then they look comparatively, it's interesting, the oil sector, and we know we've had some horrible accidents, and this doesn't inc- account for, you know, everything that's affected by oil spills, the, the secondhand effects, but 20,000 deaths in the oil sector since 1970. And of course, in third place, natural gas with 1,500, 1,500 deaths, uh, according to uh, the Institute on, I think, something called Hazardex uh, that studies accidents in the world of mining and energy. Uh, what do you call that? Removal of things from the earth. Extraction. Yeah. Uh, uh, so this is crazy. It's amazing. And there's a push, although it's, a, I think, a largely symbolic one, for more ethical, more responsible running of these types of operations, mining specifically. But, yeah, there's that conflict because traditionally... If you put in a lot of safety standards, then it costs more to run a mine. So what companies have done historically, and we've seen this in Europe and and in the United States, they move. They move to where it's cheaper. That's the old strategy, and it's been going on for years. Calling it old is is even perhaps moving too fast. It's not that old. Uh, This is yet another inspiration, rightfully so, to reform this behavior. And instead of moving your mine, plus there's, there's nowhere else to move after a while on this earth, uh, you start to actually invest in uh, safety standards. And yes, coal could cost more for the companies that mine it and for we who use it for energy and so forth, which, of course, we're not supposed to be. We're supposed to be moving on. But as we know, we still use a lot of coal in this world. Okay, I think that's <laughs> what we can... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I think you're going to hear more. The, this number, 282 killed, will rise in the in the coming day. Um, it, it could get worse, unfortunately. Let us move to the Ukraine. Not physically. I don't think we're ready to live there. But let us look at the latest from the Ukraine. We're now moving northeast away from Crimea, where so much news has been based. Crimea is yesterday's independence story. Uh, today, it's uh, Donetsk, Donetsk, and uh, also Lugansk. Everybody forgets about Lugansk because it's half the size and uh, less of a shock. So if we look at the map, Lugansk is right there on the border with Russia. It's the easternmost section of the Ukraine. And Donetsk is uh, slightly inwards. It's, it's, I think it's one state or region to the left of, of Lugansk. And Donetsk is interesting. I was reading the history of it. Um, before I get into the history, the news is they had a referendum over the weekend. A really quick one. Snappy. 90% yeah. turnout, I heard. Or was it? Ni- no, it's not 90% turnout. It's 90% voted in favor of, are we calling it auto- autonomy or independence? It's both anyway. It's independence. Uh, so now there's going to be, there is announced a state, the state of Donetsk. 
Uh, of course, the Ukraine and Kiev, the, the central government, European Union, the U.S., and surely others uh, do not recognize this referendum. Uh, I was listening to the uh, Dutch foreign minister saying, uh, basically, it's not seen as legitimate. It wasn't verified. There weren't observers, official observers. I have, a, my, of course, my dear friend Olaf. He's there, and he's reporting that the ballots themselves are, are written in MS uh, office and printed out in whatever inkjet <laughs> printer at your local uh, polling station, uh, and that basically you can vote, and then you just have to sign a paper that has some old list. So in theory, you could sign many times, and the lists are, have not been verified or anything like that. But never mind that. Uh, you know, here's the, the question. This is very philosophical. <laughs> if a country declares, if a group of people in a region declare themselves independent uh, and we say no, who's right? You know, this is one of those classic, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, well, in this case, we hear the tree, it's fallen. Uh, but do we choose to say the tree didn't fall because we don't recognize it didn't fall in the correct way? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to create a parallel here that may not exist. But so now we have the Republic or whatever it's called of Donetsk. And I've read, you know, the articles are coming out slowly. Oh, they're preparing their army. Uh, they're preparing all kinds of new things. Um, they're going to have a referendum. I think we're a month away to uh, ask the question, should we be part of Russia? Herein lies another piece of confusion. Does Russia want them? Uh, so far, I don't know if you've seen anything contrary to this, but from what I understand, the Russian government has said, slow down. You're still part of Ukraine. Uh, you know, of course, you have the right to self-determination. You know, they walk this line. But what they haven't said is, we want you. <laughs> Welcome. You know, we're, we're going to roll out the red carpet. They did that for Crimea, and they may have made other regions jealous. Uh, so now the question becomes, even if you have a referendum that says, we want to be part of Russia, how do we know Russia says yes? Um, on the one hand, they would because they want more, you know, expand the country, pride, maybe resources. Donetsk was and still is a major source of skilled labor, specifically in steel, but that was their specialty in the 1900s. We now live in 2000, and it's not exactly a powerhouse for steel. I think it's still significant, but it's not on the scale of what's coming out of Asia or, or India. Uh, India is Asia, sorry. Uh, so um, this all gets very confusing, but what we know is that the loud majority or a, la a loud uh, section of the population has taken control, and there doesn't seem to be a force that can stop them. And then the question is, should any force stop them anyway? There's supposed to be one-third of the people in this region that are ethnically Russian, one-third that are like, allegedly eth ethnically Ukrainian. This is according to you know sources, even <laughs> our friend Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. um, so the question is, did, those, did all these groups vote? Or are we just seeing the voice of the one-third that are more pro-Russia? I don't know. Um, traditionally, they vote, they supported uh, Yanukovych, so he was the pro-Russian candidate. Uh, and I guess as long as they had him, they felt like they could be part of the Ukraine, but now that they don't, uh, they want out. Um, you know, I looked in history during the Soviet Union, they actually tried to be their own uh, Soviet republic, and it didn't last long. Even the Soviet Union sort of ignored it after a while and said, all right, you're going to be part of this, the, the, the Soviet of Ukraine. And so... Um, you know, this is not the first time that they feel independent. So maybe this is something that was simmering under the surface for a very long time anyway. 
Um, but so, yeah, and we're talking about about a million people. Uh, at first, I thought it would be much smaller, but no, no. Donetsk has around a million people in its total uh, area. It has a port. Uh, what is that called? Mariupol uh, on the Black Sea, or is that the Sea of Azov that leads to the Black Sea? So it's yet another port, uh, which, of course, is significant. So all these things, all these little ingredients have come together and they've resulted in two new breakaway republics, countries, and maybe future provinces of Russia. So the question really is, what does Russia want? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it's totally obvious that this uh, riot and the, this, this uprising is fueled by what happened in the Crimea. But mm -hmm. uh, the situation is totally different. At the moment where Russia was uh, extending its reach into Crimea, it was, first of all, a more or less stable region. Mm -hmm. uh, and most important, it was the home of the Russian fleet in mm. the Black Sea. So there was a very, very strong and immediate interest by Russia to get their hands on that area because they didn't want <coughs> they didn't want to give this out of their hands at all. And they more or less used this moment of powerlessness by the uh, state of Ukraine, which is still going on, you know, to just make their point and just, you know, bring it home. It's like, Yeah, you know, we consider it to be ours anyway, so why don't we just do it? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's more or less what they wanted. In general, now there's this global power game going on, and there's this new confrontation of the West and uh, the East. You know, it's still, it sounds like old times, although those old times, you know, will ever always <laughs> remain old times. It's a new situation, although everybody is sort of repeating old stories here. And this, it's a cultural confrontation too. It's very interesting to me also, not only on this military political scale, it's also interesting to see, you know, now Russia is talking about Europe, you know, which is not them. Although, in a way, Russia could also be seen as a, a strong part of Europe. It really depends on how you <laughs> define Europe. Do you yeah. talk about a cultural Europe? Do you talk about a political Europe, which might be the European Union plus whatever states consider themselves to be closer to the Union than to anything else? And and, and this is going on. Regarding Donetsk and uh, Luhansk, I think Russia is pretty happy with the situation as it is right now. They don't really need these areas. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to gain from them, especially given the current instabilities. They would only run into trouble. You named it, you know, lots of Ukrainian people there. I mean, they had that in Crimea too with the Tatars and, you know, but the deal for them was still good. It's like, yeah, we have to secure this military-wise. That's just the most important asset in the South west of uh, our country you know we just want them and wh whatever problems might arise we're, we're going to deal with them but mm -hmm. these areas in uh, ukraine it doesn't really add much to russia it's, uh, itself all well they still say like okay if it's russian speaking people or russians uh, themselves I, i wonder when they start handing out passports to them you know 
then it, it might be uh, of general interest uh, to them as they've shown in uh, Abkhazia mm -hmm. and uh, South Ossetia and Transnistrian and all, all those uh, areas. But I don't think they need to move fast here. And right now, what they gain from it is that the Euro Ukraine itself it continues to be a very unstable, uh, in, a, in a very uh, unstable situation. And that's good for them. You know, they're happy with this current situation. They don't really need anything to change because in their global power struggle that they are dealing with right now, a instable Ukraine is better for them. So I don't know how this will end up, but it's it's a weird uh, game, and it's definitely not about these areas. They think they have their their time, but I think they will be mostly ignored for a longer time. And next yeah. up is the presidential elections in Ukraine, which more or less now can't really happen in these regions because there's no control and no willing to participate. So yeah, it's uh, it's fucked up. Yeah. By the way, here's a little stat. It's just weird uh, that lacks some confirmation. But early reports I see here, the, uh, this referendum cost 2,000 US dollars to carry out. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't know. You know, that's all. I could have my own referendum. You know, I just need to say. Yeah, they, they, could, <laughs> they could just make an industry of outsourcing referendums. Yeah, it's been called the DIY referendum, which sounds really charming. Too bad no one recognizes it. <laughs> oh, yes. Everybody needs a DIY referendum. Get your printers ready and uh, get extra ink. And you're in. You're on. Oh, man. Let's, let's move on, but surely we will be back to eastern Ukraine. Let's go to a country I've been wanting to talk about for some time, and it just always falls uh, sort of on the cutting room floor, as it does in the mainstream media as well. Algeria. You know, amidst all the stories from Egypt and Tunisia and even Morocco sometimes, but Algeria right there between them all is rarely discussed in the international press. Part of that reason is they never really had the uprising or any kind of reform. I mean, even Morocco without a full uprising had some reform regarding uh, people's rights and democracy. Well, in Algeria, the now four-time president, uh, Abdulaziz Bouteflika, started his fourth term Uh, as president. And what I didn't realize, not to slander anybody who's ever had a stroke, certainly many family members of mine have and, and lived some kind of life, pretty good life. Uh, but the, I didn't realize the president of Algeria, now starting his fourth term, won an election when he had not been seen. He had been seen twice, I think, in a year. Uh, he had a stroke last year and uh, sort of fell out of public life. But because of his control over the country, and he still gets a decent amount of respect among people who see him as a, one of the last historical figures that led the fight for independence against France. Uh, so there he is, not fully functional, but uh, there. I mean, he's met his cabinet twice in the last year, and he's about to start his fourth term as president. Um, Algeria, you know, they have opposition forces. They boycotted a lot of this process from the election to the actual swearing-in ceremony. Um, But regardless, you know, off they go again. Uh, it's been said in a lot of media analysis, there is no politics in Algeria until this man goes away. And it seems like, you know, you won't get rid of him until he's gone, like, 
of from life. Um, so there it goes. There goes Algeria. And I was reading how they have, compared to other countries who may have budget problems, Algeria actually has 182 billion U.S. dollars in in what they call currency reserves, foreign currency reserves. Reserves. They have a lot of money, and I think a lot of that has come through um, resources that they export. I don't think it's only um, oil. I think there's also what do they call it? Hydrocarbons. So I think we might ta- be talking about gas as well. So they've done well economically, but where it doesn't translate is in the money that reaches regular people, the lower classes and so forth. Um, and a lot of people want to see, of course, change in the country. But here we have a figure who is entrenched. Even if he's not fully alive or not fully functioning, he's still their man, the president. And so there we go off to a new, uh, not a new era, but a new term for the, one of the longer serving presidents in, uh, in North Africa. It's interesting to see that this whole revolutional phase that northern africa has gone through in the last two or three years hasn't really touched algeria that much there has been things going on in morocco uh and we all know how tunisia and libya and and egypt Mm. made it but algeria not so much yeah and and you know you can talk about having a strong man president who who puts a heavy hand on everything. But what's weird is now we have a situation where I think he was very much a strong president who had his hand on everything. But now he's he's assembled a machine that works without him. Uh, there have even been a few stories on Algeria sending military to the border with Libya um, in case I don't know when they'll determine it's necessary. But if things get bad. In terms of safety, as, as we know, there have been several stories coming out over the last months uh, about, you know, even within parliament in Libya, violence breaking out. So they, these stories appear every now and then, mostly in Middle Eastern press, about Algeria considering military intervention. And I think a lot of this is not coming from Bouteflika himself. It's the machine that he set up. You know, these decisions are being made in his tradition. Uh, and I don't think they would actually do it. But uh, you never know. And, and just the fact that they're amassing troops at the border is definitely uh, a development, uh, a curious development. So uh, it's not just the economic situation um, and the dem- democracy situation, but there's also this element of security and, and military, possible military action, oddly enough, um, which I still think isn't going to happen. But they, they chance it, they risk it by building up forces on the border. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so keep an eye out on Algeria, although nothing much is expected to change. Uh, but you never know. You know there are opposition forces, and surely they are growing stronger when they see. You know when this kind of government is running things. Let us go to a climate-related story. Uh, you actually brought this to my attention, and I had to look back on the history. You may all remember the name El Nino or La Niña. And I'm not talking about the boy. I'm talking about the climate pattern, the warming of the Pacific Ocean uh, that happens every few years. Uh, I didn't realize that the last time it happened was 2009, 2010, but it was considered a milder El Nino than the the very famous one that I remember much better uh, from the late 90s. That was when El Nino, I think, really became a, a buzzword 
in both uh, the climate world and in in the news yeah. when you know we had a lot of extreme weather and when he asked you know why are we having this extreme weather well the pacific ocean is warmer and this triggers all kinds of stronger weather patterns we're about to start another el nino and okay that's something and many people suspect that this could be one as strong as what we saw in the late 90s and then there's this other element of it that could this start a i don't know if the word chain reaction is good but uh, um basically a period of extreme climate change type weather because apparently the pacific ocean has not had a, a big warming in the last i read 15 years it's kind of been cooling relatively and now we're going to see a spike or we're already starting to see it i think they expect this to start happening this summer already yes so we're close to to this and this might be the beginning of a lot of uh, trouble not only related to the pacific ocean because it has yeah it, it basically is important for the whole um global relationship of climate so this could make can cause problems in europe can cause problems uh, in uh, in america um everywhere we don't yeah. know and on the one hand, I think a lot of people will say, well, you know, it la we've had this before. It lasts for a year or two, does immense amounts of damage. But then this is a cycle. But what's, what's significant to me in this story is the question of, does this actually lead to something longer term? In other words, it's not going to be a, a two-year affair where weather is crazier, which already would be quite damaging. But this could be the beginning of something that lasts quite a long time and maybe that we never get back from you know there's that there's a word for it actually in climate change in general what is it the the point of no return or there's a better word for it where you have climate change that is already in in free fall that is irreversible and and strong at its strongest point there's a better word for it out there i don't know what it is yeah i mean this this story we are we're quoting um science um yeah, yeah. As, as a source here and uh, actually there's another news that broke um, two days ago that is reporting from the Antarctic and where there's a, r a big Antarctic uh, ice sheet that is uh, collapsing and well there's also many indications that there is something going on that's also very irreversible and the, the main problem is that once the antarctica isn't strong enough to balance the climate of the rest of the world we are in big trouble hmm. and there's many there are just many small signs that 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 point to this happening sooner than than later and the irreversibility of it is i think the main problem uh we were uh, able to deal with the uh, ozone layer, the ozone hole on, on, on the uh, South Pole somehow, you know, by a quick, more or less quick reaction by the industry worldwide. And it's actually improved ever since. And it's probably um, shielded us from a lot of possible harm. But this thing is really big. And uh, once the Antarctic is no longer capable of uh, keeping up the balance... Um. Yeah, I don't know. It I, looks like a grim future. 
I was looking over the report that you're talking about from actually from a glaciologist, someone who studies glaciers um, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And he called this indeed the point of no return, this breaking off of this, um, this uh, what do you call it, the, the, the Antarctic ice sheet or the melting of the Antarctic ice sheet. He says this alone, which is happening right now, it puts us past the point of no return. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's already quite alarming. And it's, it's, we're getting to that point. As he says, we're already past that point where you can do something, that it's the time to act, the time to take bold action. Uh, and everything else that we do will be too little too late. Um, again, not an excuse to do nothing in terms of nations, and, and, but um, a reminder of this is not a future thing. This is a present thing. Hmm. All right, I'll link to that story, actually, uh, from NASA, in fact. Down to an economic story, and actually, this one comes out of Portugal. Uh, it's actually, so we had Portuguese Revolution Day, which is kind of like an Independence Day, happened last month, and that's the traditional one from 1974. But this Saturday, it's a big day in Portugal as the country exits the bailout package and, generally speaking, bailout mode. Uh, as some people may recall, 2011, they, you know, Portugal hit this major crisis budget-wise. Um, government did not have enough money to keep running things. And this group that includes uh, the IMF came in with 78 billion euros to bail the country out. But, of course, uh, you get some uh, requirements with these kind of bailouts. And the big requirement, generally speaking, was cut you know, cut costs, make extreme budget cuts. So that includes everything from privatizing anything you can uh, to cutting uh, jobs to basically reducing everything the government does. And you can feel that if you've been to Portugal lately or perhaps you've seen the stories. Uh, of course, it's, it's something closer to home for me because I'm there a lot. Uh, so Saturday's the day, and at the same time, you get these announcements. Portugal has always been called the good student in, uh, in economic bailout terms, compared to the bad student that's Greece. Um, the S&P and other ratings agencies have now improved what so-called the, the rating of um, Portugal's financial status or credit rating to B. And apparently they were at junk bond status for these last few years, but they say the country's economy is now somehow surprisingly strong. Yes, yeah, surprising considering what they've just gone through. And they predict things like a 1.4 growth per year and all these little things. So I don't know if this is going to be seen as a huge you know, success by economists outside of Portugal. In Portugal, there's kind of a sigh of relief, but at the same time, there's not too much to feel relieved about because it's not like the faucet is going to turn back on. You are, the damage is done. The bombs have been dropped. You know, There's huge craters in the country from unemployment to just simply really expensive services and cost of living. And, uh, and that's it, right? No more bailout. So I guess things go back to quote unquote normal. And you get this bit of good news saying, hey, your economy is strong. But then, you know, there's tons of people asking, is this what a strong economy looks like? Uh, so we're about to see what happens when you're the good student of uh, a financial bailout and you follow your punishment and then you come out and then what happens? And we're going to get to see something else, I guess, in the case of Greece, you know, what happens when you resist the punishment and you question 
these these uh, restrictions and so forth. So instead of the usual debates about you know what happens, should we do this? Shouldn't we do this? We're actually watching the results now, and we're going to be seeing them for the next year or more. What's the situation with the um, youth unemployment in, in in Portugal? Is it as bad as it is in Spain? Uh, yes. <laughs> the simple answer is yes. I think it could compete with any uh, statistically. And, and there's, of course, the stuff that isn't on the books because you could have a job and be paid horribly. Or what happens in Portugal a lot of times is you have a job, but payments are delayed, deferred. So even that uh, messes with statistics. But mm -hmm. I think even officially, unemployment in Portugal... Uh, is among the highest in the European Union. I don't know if they beat France. I know France is very famous for youth unemployment. Um, let's see if I can spot it. 15%? It's about at 15%. I don't know who beats that in the European Union at this point. Uh, I think I think the numbers were worse in, in, in Spain recently, but I don't really have the numbers ready. Yeah. I mean, in 2013, it hit 17%. They say, again, this is part of the whole, the good news is, they say that this year is, is much better. I'll get you the Spain number. Um, but, the, you know, this is a situation that's hitting not just in Europe, but in, I saw it in Egypt. You have a lot of people who got their education. They're highly educated. They took the training courses and everything they were supposed to do for their careers. Because we've been saying this all over the world. Get your education, you'll be qualified for the good jobs. And in theory, that does happen. But the question is, what happens when there aren't the jobs? Uh, so Egypt faces this, right? A, a highly educated youth, or at least a, a good, a well-educated youth, especially in the cities, but not an economy that can actually use all these people. So, you know, we've completed the first half of the promise do the education, get the trainings. But the second half of the, so I'm calling it a promise, there's no guarantee, I guess. But the second half is, yeah, what are the jobs? Wow, unemployment in Spain is listed at 25%, but this is total. This is not youth. Still, okay. I think it's much higher, <laughs> higher in the youth and it was uh, going up to 50% uh, at least during the last year sometime. I wonder if Spain is just more honest than other countries. <laughs> They don't fudge the numbers. Oh, it's true. We suck. <laughs> you know? And Portugal is sitting around going, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. We can take, we can adjust that number. Look at you. You, you cleaned the floor today. That's like a job. Yeah, you really worked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. That's, yeah. That is impressive. So Portugal, I guess, is really not as bad as horrible. It's just bad. Wow. Okay, I won't keep looking at this list because it's very sad. Uh, so that is the word, and we will see what happens with Portugal. And you'll get to hear a lot about it in person because I will be there uh, a couple of times a year. So there's that story. And lastly today, something we could have talked about at the top of the show, but I got so into the news. Um, Tim, you, you were representing, as we say, representing at Republica. Uh, that was last week there in Berlin. A uh, huge gathering of, of people talking about many different topics, uh, world topics, uh, new media topics. And you were, of course, busy with the world of podcasting. And uh, I mean, I watched your talk. I thought it was very interesting. A lot about what is coming in the near future uh, and what is happening in the present when it comes to not just audio, but basically making your own media and producing it uh, in, in efficient and interesting ways. How was it for you? Well, it was uh, 
Uh, it was a big event. I, I don't know if they've released any official numbers, but it was probably growing for another 20% more people. So I, I expect something like something between 6,000 and 8,000, but I don't really know it. Um, yeah, my talk, I mean, I was one of, I don't know, so many speakers. The, the list was uh, so long. I don't know. They've just released 192 video recordings of talks, and that's not even all the talks because some of them they were just uh, recorded on audio, mm. and I don't really know where they're going to uh, put them out. If they're also going to put them on uh, YouTube, I don't know. Anyway, um, so yeah, I had the opportunity to talk again about podcasting, and I'm feel a bit ashamed that I'm, you know, constantly pounding the same drum here. <laughs> but I felt it was uh, important both to do a talk in English for the first time and um, also, you know, give some kind of overview of what we've done and what, what we think where everything should lead to. And also the present is this idea that I don't really see a big difference in podcasting in general and conferences like Republica and other conferences mm. when it comes to uh you know, publishing uh, your recordings and, and, and searching for metadata and so on. So that's something we're focusing on. Everybody who might be interested in this uh, topic is very welcome to review what I said. It was a bit strange because I've been talking about the future and usually I, uh, you know, I don't really like that so much because it's, uh, you know, things change and it's always better to point to stuff that has actually happened, not so much to what can happen, but it was also important for me to sort of address open minds to, you know, start thinking about things and to get into a discussion uh, on this and look for cooperation here. Yeah, apart from that, we did our own podcasting stage at the Republica, so we got a, a separate room where we are offering space to people who like to do their own podcasts, which happened, so people were coming and doing their own shows on Republica or just about whatever they felt was uh, the right thing to talk about. Um, and that's, I, I think it's a good concept to have something like this going on and be visible to people on an event that's mostly about, you know, publishing in the, the age of the internet. Yeah. Is, is there any, I mean, besides publishing as the general inspiration for this event was there any dominating theme i don't know if they choose that or it just happens and when you look down the list of who's talking well once In more this whole post snowden thing dominated mm -hmm. the, the 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 politics uh for sure i mean all the other uh related um problems were also coming up uh net neutrality and other things but this was by far surveillance was by far the the most dominant topic so it was a very political republica this time uh, I found so I mean it usually has this notion attached to it that it's sort of you know addressing startup issues and, and, and business and it's all you know about the economy I don't think so I think it's really an event that is about society in general and economy plays a role in there and policies play a role in there and cultural things play a role in there and they've uh, addressed it all yeah <laughs> Uh, and they might they had some interesting uh, home runs uh, with some you know <laughs> speakers nobody expected like Bianca Jagger and, and and even David Hasselhoff made it. What? Oh, <laughs> yes, oh. that's funny. The uh, king uh, of uh, culture. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> He's like the bringer of freedom, you know. Uh, 
<laughs> but he was just a, a sort of an assistant to one of the sponsors uh, who talked about their, their freedom-related project, which is uh, probably not a bad idea. But you know, the, this the whole presentation was really, really cheesy. But it was <laughs> funny, funny to watch um, how Republica actually dealt with this uh, ongoing discussion that like, oh my God, David Hasselhoff is speaking at Republica. No, the world is coming to an end. <laughs> Close the shops. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure uh, some people were angry, I'm sure, somewhere. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> of course they were. And, 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 but they reacted in the best possible way by uh, producing yet another version of the Hitler Reacts meme. <laughs> I'll go watch that. Yeah. That's so amazing. It's uh, Hitler reacts to his talk being uh, not accepted for Republica. <laughs> it's really one of the best ever. I mean, I've seen them all and this is just spot on. It's funny. <laughs> so this is the last link in this week's edition of News of the World that you're free to click. Yeah. What a way to go out. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> And uh, yeah, uh, on this side of the uh, the microphone, uh, not too much going on, except we did have the boys from 2600 are in town. They've left heading somewhere in Germany right oh. now. Oh. And so we did some off the hook. We did a podcast that will be on my show soon as well. And they're, of course, getting ready for hope. Um, which is not going to be a link. We'll link it as we get closer to uh, to the conference in, in New York, which is going on in July. But um, yeah. Those are you are going the, to be there? Developments. No, no, I cannot afford. I'm a hardworking man these days, uh, making regaining funds after a lot of time of doing different projects that didn't earn me anything. Uh, so I have to stay here. Uh, I'm hibernating, or or I'm going local, as a lot of uh, brands like to say. Um, <laughs> Bicycle Mark is going local. Oh. So yeah, I even got a flat tire yesterday. That's how you know I'm really local. Uh, I'm riding my bike so much around town that I yeah hit something. <laughs> Uh, so that means uh, all the better for doing uh, News of the World and other programs. Uh, and that means that we will be back with you, most likely, in the coming week or so. Mm-hmm. And until then, there's always the website where you can leave comments and you can make it even more interactive by putting your two cents into this operation. And uh, yeah, that's it, right, Tim? It is. All right. We will catch you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.